0: The show where no question is too big or too small, and I I mean too small, all the way down to the quarks, nothing is too small for what the if we take it, we take all comers, as they say. Um, We're gonna get. We have an amazing guest this week. I'm super psyched. I'm so psyched for this topic that we're discussing this week, which we'll cut to in one minute. But first. Let's bring in our our, um, our regular hosts, our chieftains, um, Gabby Panicia and uh, Matt Stanley. Um, Gabby, how are you? Gabby is a virologist at Rockefeller University here in New York City. How yeah, are things um, with I'm you? I'm
1: a little bit out of breath, not gonna lie. I sprinted here from an experiment that went oh a God. little late. Um, so, I mean, fortunately, I was not working with virus, so it was not as unsafe as it could have been. Um, but I, I messed up like halfway through and had to take a bunch of media out of wells. And I was like, it just wasted a bunch of time. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to be late. So hopefully I do not sound too haggard. And well, I'm just
2: saying it's somewhat alarming when the virologist says, I made a mistake and now I'm out of breath. Um, <laughs> it just sounds like the start of a Stephen King novel.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's actually funny, too, because I'm really, I'm only now actually just starting SARS-2 work, really, really getting in while it's lukewarm. Uh, But this is my uh, introduction of the respiratory viruses. So if I ever really sound out of breath uh, and it's not for running late, maybe, maybe I uh, had some unsafe lab practices. Who knows?
0: And when you said you had to get some media. Yeah, not your kind
1: of media. My kind of media is like a liquid that we keep cells in that... Allows cells Just to grow
0: Different. Oh, that's boy. I'm glad I don't. If I accidentally went to the wrong store and asked for some media, I would get something uh, that would be awkward I'd, a bottle of well, something
1: that's, that's a very attractive red color but very enigmatic <laughs> <antibiotic> otherwise.
0: <laughs> That'd be cool, <laughs> fantastic. Um, well, I'm glad you're glad you're well and glad the experiments are uh moving along uh apace. Uh, Matt, how are you? Uh, how's your breathing uh,
2: today? You're at New um, York University. Hang on here, I'll take some deep breaths. I'm good, thanks. Oh, good. (laughs) Um, I've got my dog with me in the office today, so actually she's a little smelly, so deep breaths is actually not the best thing to be doing. (laughs) But in terms of health, I'm fine.
0: Right, right. She probably thinks the same about you, though. I would imagine so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, Real quick check in the mailbag, and then we're going to get to our if today. Um, I get to play, uh, I get to bring in one of my favorites. We have four Bands, four music groups here lined up on stage, and I can call upon any one of them at any time. And uh, for this one, I have my favorite. In fact, uh, our guest, Nicole, who's coming up in a moment, is from Maryland. Here's a little bluegrass for their mailbag. This is my mailbag music. For some reason, it bespeaks going to the mailbox. Uh, And uh, we have a a letter that came in uh, from one of our uh, longtime listeners. And this is from uh, my stepfather, uh, who's a physicist, and uh, he writes in, um, uh, we're talking about it, we did an April Fool's episode last time, and um, he says, uh, he googled April Fool's Day, we were asking, wh- where did April Fool's, where did that tradition come from? Um, and it took the retired physicist to go to the extra length of actually googling it to find the answer something we did not do. Apologize for that. Um, And he says uh, he wrote in, and he says uh, he googled April Fool's Day, and he came across a quote probable story. Um, Being a scientist, he knows to uh, cite the error bars there on this story. And he says uh, uh, a probable story that when the calendar was changed in the 16th century, the old version, known as the Julian calendar, had April 1st as the beginning of the year, but the new version, the Gregorian calendar, put the beginning of the year at January 1st. And so if you continued to think April 1st was the beginning of the year, you were an April fool. Probably lots of physics and sociology in that story, if true. Yeah. Soci- well, physics, I, the physics, I'm not sure. What would physics mean? But uh, perhaps he means that a lot of physicists uh, call each other fools at times. Uh, that does so. happen sometimes. <laughs> <It> does happen. <laughs> so, Which in no way is a segue to our esteemed guest I want to bring in. Uh, joining us um, is the amazing Nicole Younger Halpern, uh, coming to us from uh, University of Maryland. And uh, Nicole, you are the author of uh, a book called Quantum Steampunk. Indeed. Did I say? that? And uh, you are now. This is the 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 uh, your, your you are identify you you self identify as quote theoretical physicist and Fellow of the Joint Center for Quantum Information and Computer Science at the University of Maryland. That's correct. That's wonderful. That must be a long, um, I don't know, is that like on your desk if you had like a long, like a name plate? That doesn't even
3: have my title. I have a whole bag of <laughs> affiliations. It's wonderful. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and awesome. so many acronyms to go with all the affiliations.
0: That seems somehow fitting. I don't know, maybe there's some sort of, like you are a superposition of uh, many, many mm-hmm states. Yes. I I
3: have sometimes called myself or uh, described my position as being a superposition of this and that and the other thing. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Mm
0: -hmm. That's awesome. Um, and your, your book is amazing and, and we're going to, we're going to jump right in here to the if, and then we'll, we'll, you know, obviously the book itself will come up quite a bit here, I I imagine. Um, so the book is called Quantum Steambunk and you have asked, and we're just going to jump right in, uh, What the if? I was so good. I was getting really good at the music. And the band is playing, by the way, but Mm -hmm. nobody can hear them because I forgot to lift the cone of silence.
2: Uh, Oh, well, that'll
0: happen. So, also known as the volume knob. And so, (laughs) let's try that again. Sorry, guys. You'll get paid twice, of course, as always. What the if? The Victorians, oh, those fine people, had become proficient in quantum science and used quantum science in their technology. Soak that in, the Victorians. And Matt will help us uh, imagine how those people dressed, for instance, and smelled. What if they became proficient in quantum science? The mind reels. Um, So, Nicole, maybe a
3: little background would be useful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Why don't you steampunk and tell us?
3: Sure, and and quantum technologies. So um, there are a number of important technological and intellectual revolutions that have happened over the past few centuries. One of the most important was the Industrial Revolution, around the turn of the seventeenth or. uh, turn of the century to the 1700s, the steam engine was invented or reinvented. It had been used a little bit across history, but not very much. And for the first time, it was being used in factories and on a large scale. So the world industrialized, changed totally socially, economically, politically, and so on. And the Victorians uh, came around right at the tail of the Industrial Revolution. Um, There are Two other revolutions that are particularly important to my work, as I'm a quantum physicist, they're called the first and the second quantum revolutions. The first quantum revolution happened around the 1920s and the 1930s. It's called the passive quantum revolution, because this is when scientists were just discovering quantum physics, soaking it in, trying to make sense of it, and trying to figure out what is quantum physics. Nowadays, we're in the midst of the second quantum revolution, or the active quantum revolution because now we have a pretty good handle on how quantum physics works, and now we're using it in order to enhance technologies, to process information in ways impossible for classical systems, for our laptops, even for today's supercomputers. people are building quantum computers, quantum cryptographic systems, quantum communication networks, quantum sensors. And uh, so the Industrial Revolution gave birth to the field of thermodynamics, which is the study of energy, because people wanted to understand how efficiently these new engines could perform their work. But thermodynamics was developed to describe steam engines, which are very large, everyday type systems. And the systems that we're dealing with now in cutting edge science, quantum systems, are extremely different. So we have to re-envision the theory of thermodynamics for the 21st century. We need to ask what do quantum engines look like and how well could they operate? Mm. So my work is at this intersection is called by most people quantum thermodynamics. I call it quantum steampunk because (laughs) it has the flavor of steampunk which is a genre of literature, art and film. And it's set in Victorian settings. So Sherlock in London, the American wild, wild west, Meiji Japan and so on but it features futuristic technologies like time machines and flying ships. So my colleagues and I work at a very similar intersection. We have the thermodynamics of the Victorian era and we're putting it together with quantum science and technologies that are cutting edge science and actually partially futuristic science that are still being built. So I call this area quantum steampunk. And I am curious about what the world would be like if the um, the first and the last revolutions so the uh, were closer together so what if the victorian's who had just experienced the industrial revolution underwent the second quantum revolution
0: yeah and how much how many years would are would we be speeding things up so in other words like what decades are we talking about with the victorian's and what decades are we talking about where they discover what quantum mechanics seems to get yeah, i
3: believe the victorian era was 1837 to 1901 mm. and quantum theory so the very beginnings of quantum theory started to be realized around the turn of the um century or around the turn of the 20th century but quantum theory was really formalized in the 1920s and 1930s and the second quantum revolution started Began kicking off in the 1990s, and we're really in the midst of it right now.
0: Wow, wow! So it's amazing, actually. That really, just at least as far as the beginnings of quantum mechanics go, we're only talking maybe a generation separating the Victorians from from that entering um, entering physics. And um,
3: interestingly, there there's a little bit of overlap. For instance, uh, uh, James Clerk Maxwell, um, or th- there were some people who who sort of belonged to both sides, and um, Thermodynamics, the study of energy that was developed in part during the Victorian era, it's even involved wrestling with the idea of atomism. The thermodynamics describes materials in terms of large scale properties like temperature and volume and pressure, which characterize the entire material. And thermodynamicists, some of the thermodynamicists were saying, hey, we have this really accurate theory. All we need to do is describe these really big properties. Why are you thinking about these eensy winsy particles that we can't even see? We're doing very well with stuff we can see. What you're doing is kind of unscientific. Fortunately, the atomists ended up winning out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, Gabby, um, if you, you could represent the... Um the part of us, uh, of which I am also a member, sort of the audience sort of coming at this a little bit from the outside. Um, So what questions do you have? What's a question you have to sort of help us get this thought experiment going that we can keep everybody on board with?
1: Yeah, so I kind of just want to establish what you mean by quantum. So we hear quantum physics, and I'm assuming this is sort of the part of physics where things can be in multiple states at once. Um, but I know that's also the part of physics that gets really wonky. Um, so how is this, you know, how are you making things that are working using quantum physics principles and also just like maybe like a general overview of like what quantum physics is, which I realize is probably a huge question.
3: Quantum physics is where things go wonky is a pretty good description. <laughs> <laughs> loosely speaking, quantum physics is the study of what's, usually considered to be the very small. So it describes pretty well single or a few atoms or electrons or ions or particles of light. And these systems can behave in ways impossible for everyday systems like books and microphones and human beings, which we call classical. So quantum physics is non-classical. And classical physics can be described very well by the physics of Isaac Newton and his followers and the theory of electromagnetism that was developed um, also during the Victorian era uh, when I, I shouldn't actually have mentioned Maxwell earlier. I meant that it was more in the electromagnetic side. Um, and so, so what are some of these strange behaviors? You've alluded to superpositions. So those are often associated with quantum physics. And um, very loosely speaking, in a cartoon sort of a sense, um, you could perhaps think of a particle that's in a superposition of different locations as, um, in some sense, acting as though it were in multiple positions at the same time. A wonky quantum behavior that is used a lot in quantum technologies is entanglement. Entanglement is a relationship that quantum particles can share and classical particles can't. If quantum particles are entangled, then loosely speaking, they're really strongly correlated. Um, There are different levels you can explain entanglement at. Um, One cartoon picture that's often given is suppose that uh, each of Gabby and I has a particle and say two electrons. And we bring our electrons together, we can perform some operation on them that creates entanglement between them. And then we can take the particles as far apart as we please. You can stay in New York. I can go to Maryland. And then if Gabby measures her particle, then again, loosely speaking, in a cartoon sort of picture, my particle changes instantaneously, even though the particles are quite far apart. So that's one way to think of it. And so... Um, this entanglement does create very strong correlations. And correlations are sort of information. Um, My particle knows something about your particle, right? And um, some important tasks that we want to perform involve processing information, like computing and communicating and securing information cryptographically. So if we can add entanglement and other quantum resources to perform these tasks, these information processing tasks, then sometimes we can perform these tasks in ways impossible for classical systems. For instance, quantum computers, when they are scaled up to their full size, that'll take a good number of years, I think, (laughs) quantum computers will be able to solve certain computational problems much more quickly than any classical computer, even a supercomputer.
1: So it can kind of let you fit more power into a smaller space by exploiting just the like on an atomic level, what's going on as yeah. opposed to metal
0: to metal or something like that That's so
1: really cool. here
0: yeah. uh, here's here's where uh, I think what help me is um the, matt you are uh you, you we've uh, teleported you back to uh, this age, to the Victorian age. Mm-hmm. And you are wearing uh, you were fortunately doing cosplay at a steampunk convention when this accidental <laughs> oh, teleportation that happened. That worked out nicely. Yeah. Which so, I'm sure
3: you do every weekend. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> and so fortunately you know, you have the requisite top hat and aviator goggles on and, um, mm-hmm. and things like that. And um, you're, you're suddenly back in a kind of Jules Verne situation here. I suppose some sort of um, maybe laboratory or, or uh factory or somewhere uh, maybe a power plant I'm not sure where where might you be what what went you what was something you would like to be doing where suddenly having an understanding of uh, or bringing in quantum physics into your steam
2: powered world would make a difference well that's a good question because you got to pick carefully so like if we just go to a place where they happen to have a steam engine running um, that's not going to help much of anything, Um, no one's going to be very impressed with what I have to say. Um, So I've got to find people who are already investigating stuff that uh, quantum would help us figure out. Um, And that's kind of tricky. So originally quantum comes out of uh, quantum, the early quantum physics comes out of studies of um, black body radiation, which is um, basically you heat up an object until it glows. Um, and people are trying to figure out the physics behind that. And the, largely the, the folks who are doing that um, are in Germany. So I don't know if we need to hop the, the channel. Um, Nicole, do you think there's people doing Maxwellian electromagnetism that we could have a conversation with? Or are they not far enough along?
3: Yeah, I think they would. Um, under the assumption that we're the, the world is ready for quantum theory, I think that they would be... Interested in hearing from you about how, as they're describing light and electromagnetic radiation with just waves, you can also clue them into how it has a particle-like nature and how to describe that with uh, quantum field theory.
0: Mm-hmm. But what what's it? Um, I'm imagining, for instance, here's here's something I think everyone can understand. Tell me if this is helpful. Uh, a, a steam locomotive, right? We've all seen those, right? And basically you, uh, they use coal to, um, heat up, uh, you know, a big box of water, (laughs) the water boils and they use the steam to push the, uh, pistons that drive the train forward, right? Um, is this something in which knowing something or, you know, in your book, Nicole, for instance, what, what kind of, um, um, real world, mechanics or something uh, come into play where we might, is that how it works? I guess I'm, I'm, I'm not well, quite sure, to- yeah, how this yeah, would affect if, them, if, yeah.
3: If we wanna talk about engines, we can certainly talk about quantum engines uh-huh. and the mm. quantum engines that we quantum thermodynamicists have devised so far are not quite at the level of being able to push a, an everyday sized locomotive, but they do exhibit some cool effects. For instance, it turns out that you don't need a whole lot of moving parts, a whole lot of gears to make an engine that performs useful work. You can make an engine from just one atom.
0: What? And... What? <laughs> so what is... Like, okay? So... Yeah, go ahead.
3: Yeah, this is actually the first quantum engine ever proposed in 1959. And so um, a laser contains atoms which emits lights um, in uh, to create a laser that you would say shine on the floor to make your cat go crazy yes. and um, but you can make something that's a lot like a laser. It also emits light. Just this light is microwave. So this is called a maser instead of a laser. love uh-huh. that. And the proposal was to take the atoms or even just an atom in a maser and uh, that could serve as an engine. So as Philip, as you were mentioning, uh, the existence of different temperatures in a steam engine is important. As you said, we need to heat up the steam. And it starts at a different temperature, the temperature, uh, temperature different from the one at which it ends up. So yeah, here we take an atom, and we need to have it be in contact with two different environments at two very different temperatures. One of the advantages of making this whole setting quantum is that um, one of the environments can, uh, in a sense, be um, it can have a, a negative temperature, which and what's really important for a heat engine is that the difference between the two environments' temperatures be as large as possible, because the, the the larger the difference between the two temperatures, the more efficiently your engine can work. And so, in the quantum setting, um, one of the environments can actually be at at a negative temperature and what the really weird thing is here is that negative temperature makes that environment hotter than it would be at infinite temperature so negative temperatures are really 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 hot
0: (laughs) wait so so negative temperature doesn't mean below freezing really
3: really cold no what what is negative yeah so there's uh a lower limit on the temperature that any system, classical or quantum, can achieve. Although, if you get a system to be that cold, then it's going to exhibit quantum behaviors. Mm-hmm. And that's absolute zero or zero Kelvin mm-hmm. in units of Kelvin. Right.
2: All right. So how but do we can... explain, how do we get the Victorians <laughs> thinking about this without their heads exploding? Um, like, is there a, what's the, what's the bridge we can use to get from, what they think about reality to understanding these this crazy stuff.
3: As you were pointing out, some of the bridge was in place, for instance, the problem of black body radiation. Okay. Do you want to maybe explain that?
2: Yeah, so the, um, this puzzle of, um, of black body radiation uh, seemed like it should have been pretty straightforward to them. So if you take a charge like an electron and you move it around, um, it gives off light. Um, so that's so. it seems like it's a pretty clear problem, you just uh, sit down with your equations um, that describe the motion of particles, and you uh, set up your equations to describe how the particles are moving at different temperatures, and that should explain um, how much light comes off. Um, but it turns out that the equations that they were using in, say, the 1890s to work on this didn't match up to what they were actually seeing. Um, in the lab. Um, so there was what was called the ultraviolet catastrophe at the time, which is that if you if you took the equation seriously, all the energy in a body should be radiated away at these short wavelengths and ultraviolet radiation. And that clearly By the did way, not happen. Uh,
0: yeah. And I have to point out that the ultra, ultraviolet catastrophe is one of my favorite scientific terms ever. It's one of the few that's actually dramatic. As opposed to underplaying oh, sure. the situation, mm-hmm. you know, and I love the fact that basically it was sort of a—it meant that they they couldn't figure it out, and therefore it was a catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, that's a pretty good song. Catastrophe
1: actually, is also my uh, my term for whenever my pale boyfriend goes out in the sun. <laughs> 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 Instant ultraviolet uh, catastrophe. <laughs>
2: All right. So, so that would be a good strategy. It would be one strategy, right? So we grab um, Wilhelm Wien or whoever's working on the calculations that day. And we say, you know, I've got, a, I've got something that can help make your day better, right? You know how you've been anxious about your ultraviolet catastrophe? Um, why don't you try quantizing uh, your vibrators? And then, uh, and then we'll see. Okay. Okay. I have no idea what that meant. Yeah. But I'm going to say, don't Google it. (laughs) Uh, That's right. That could get awkward. Yeah. Um, uh, Yeah. So the um, vibrators was was a term for imaginary uh, atoms. Oscillators would be the technical
0: term. Exactly. Um, Exactly.
2: That's right. So something like an atom um, uh, jiggles back and forth when you heat it up. So the the hope was that you could just treat it. With your equations as though it was a particle bouncing back and forth um, And then as you watch the energy in it get converted from the jiggling motion Into the electromagnetic waves you could understand where the blackbody radiation comes from um, And it turns out the, the the trick that Max planck had to do to make the equation work out, right? Um, was that he had to say they could only vibrate in particular ways. They couldn't vibrate however. They wanted um, right. So, like if you were um, trying to think of a, a good macroscopic oscillator, if you had a yo-yo um, and it was going up and down, you, cu- you could imagine that you have your yo-yo go up and down at whatever kind of pace that you want. Um, but quantization says you can only do it at certain rates. So you can have it go up and down once per second and you can have it go up and down once every three seconds, but you cannot have it go up and down once every two seconds. Um, which seems to be self evidently absurd, right? There's no reason the universe should look like that, which yeah. is why why people were very upset. That um, quantum. That's a great
0: image. That's a great though. image. That, yeah, yeah, if you imagine something that, yeah, eventually you get down to a point where no, it can't. It ha- it literally just stops these. It it literally just exists at it these certain can, places. Right, it just cannot go the other way. Yeah. And it doesn't even go in between. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. Um, so I think we we've lost a lot of people. So I want to. We, there were a bunch of people that uh, you know how. I rem- in de- depictions of what it was like to ride the early steam uh, trains. Uh, people talked about how they would constantly get smoke and ash, and cinders and things like that in their eyes and on their clothes. It was extremely unpleasant. And stuff like that. And I think a, a lot of our uh, we're about to lose a bunch of people. So, in the in the book, uh, Nicole, I'm curious. Do you uh, are there things they the Victorians would end up being able to build from the thing, or are you, are you more concerned with their understanding of things that would eventually lead them to electronics, for instance? Like it, you, what I loved is you were talking about the quantum engine, uh, and I'm wondering like is that something? What if we scaled that up to a locomotive or something like that? Is that how? how what paths do you kind of pursue in imagining this clash of Victorians and quantum mechanics
3: Mm -hmm. yeah i think that it would make sense to imagine that the victorians first would have had the passive quantum revolution so first they would understand how does quantum physics work and then later they would be able to apply that understanding to undergo the active quantum revolution to build quantum technologies so i think that there could be a lot of implications for instance um when we're using the internet, then we see URLs that begin HTTPS, and the S indicates that the connection between um, your computer and a server is secure. And I, I suspect that that HTTPS might be an HTTPQ if there were Interesting. Uh, <laughs> quantum technologies available And if they had been available for a long time, for instance, since the Victorian era, is something, as I mentioned, that if we have quantum devices, then we can process information in ways impossible for everyday technologies. And one aspect of processing information involves hacking or breaking encryptions. So there's, um, if you purchase some merchandise online, say through Amazon, then your credit card information is secured with some common cryptographic protocol. But if there were quantum computers around, and, and as far as we know, to the best of our computer science knowledge, classical computers could not break this encryption in any half reasonable amount of time, but quantum computers would be able to break it pretty quickly. So I think that um, by the time we reached the 21st century from the quantum Victorian era, there would be post-quantum cryptography that is resistant to quantum computers that would be already in place so that every time you made a purchase from quantum Amazon that would arrive on a quantum drone, then you would be sending your credit card information securely via an HTTP Q protocol. Wow. Now, so but, if we're back and in this case, of course, of course, what you would order from Amazon would be your top hat and waistcoat yes. and so on. Right,
0: and I was <laughs> going to say the computer that I'm using. If in the Victorian age, I'm just using a Babbage machine or something, aren't I? Just like some sort of
3: yeah. Uh, I mean, and that features in a lot of steampunk work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, are you? Do you? What what do you what's the most compelling like what's the part of your your blending of these two things that really just leaps out at you as like the most compelling and amazing or bizarre kind of thing? Um,
3: well, I could say something about bizarre, and I think that Matt would have fun with this. I think that if the Victorians really understood quantum theory, then Albert Einstein might never have gotten a Nobel Prize.
2: Oh, that would mm. be a bummer. Yeah, dastardly. <laughs>
3: And, and i think that, that would totally Wait, change our culture potentially you mean because and he would because have been we,
2: scooped
0: or somebody would have gotten it before way him scooped. Mm-hmm. yeah
3: yeah so a lot of people know einstein for his theory of relativity first the special version and then the general version and in a minute i'll give this up to matt because i'm sure he has plenty to say <laughs> but he he actually got his nobel prize not for relativity but for a really early contribution for quantum theory uh, to quantum theory. So. He, um he he explained a pretty simple experiment um that and so he explained a phenomenon called the photoelectric effect by saying hey maybe light consists of little particles he wasn't the first person to say that but uh, finally the the ground was fertile for this idea to blossom and so he explained this really simple experiment by imagining a quantum world and that's why he got a nobel prize and um so he, he also became really famous for relativity, but I wonder maybe our standards of uh, and of household names and in terms of household names and mm-hmm. intellectual levels and so on in reference to Einstein would be different if the Victorians had figured out quantum physics so that there were, there wasn't that for Einstein to do.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's great. So I love that. I love that image. Um, yeah, so we t- sometimes talk about Einstein's miracle year when he does all sorts of super important scientific work, and and one of one of those papers is special relativity, and one of them is explaining this uh, this this weird thing, the photoelectric effect, um, uh, which is kind of the first, I don't know, meaningful quantum calculation or something like that, uh, application of the quantum idea to um, uh, to understanding something macroscopic like that. Uh, yeah, so then Einstein, 1905. Um, that's uh, actually his work on quantum that gets most of his attention. We remember relativity and he's excited about relativity. Um, but nobody's going to give him that sweet job at the University of Zurich um, for relativity. Uh, it's it's the quantum stuff that gets everybody excited. Um, yeah, so I think totally reasonable to say Einstein remains an obscure patent clerk. Um, and it's also... Uh, Know, the, in, in the real world, our world, um, quantum physics really grows out of um, Germany and Central Europe uh, as a whole. Um, but if the Victorians have figured it out, then the center of gravity for that is most certainly in the Anglo-American world. Um, uh, so the, the I don't know if that means the British Empire lasts a few more generations too, if they're way ahead technologically.
0: <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. but if what, what's funny here is what we're doing is we're sort of you're leapfrogging over actually the way history actually played out right and so what what strikes me is kind of amazing here is what you're talking about is some sort of incredible revolution in thought or understanding happens at a time where they don't have the equipment yet to actually explore it is that the way that's yeah go ahead
3: yeah, so the, the Victorians, of course, didn't actually discover quantum theory, right? Um, but as we've discussed, some of the underpinnings were there, and this this experiment that Einstein explained to get his Nobel Prize that was a pretty simple experiment. So um, we could imagine that quantum theory was discovered just a few decades earlier.
0: And how would so so suppose if if the quantum suppose a, a book I don't know for some reason one one of Richard Feynman's Lectures or something in print form dropped into um, uh, uh, into the Victorian age and somebody picked it up and read it right um, what how might that have affected them and would there have been anything practical they could do to set about using this? Uh,
2: Knowledge that that is from nodding, a no, no. That's I, I, I really want to hear what you have to say about that. Actually, <laughs> I'm, I've, I've been <laughs> okay, pondering that myself. Yeah.
3: So, well, first of all, there's this impression that is very widespread that quantum physics is just really, really, really difficult to intuit, and that humans can't really ever understand quantum physics. And Feynman has some uh, very famous quote attributed to him that's associated with this idea. But on the other hand, Feynman had great intuition about quantum physics. And what I, what is one of, I think, the most important contributions of Feynman's book series, the Feynman Lectures on Physics, was intuition. So he, in many cases, doesn't go through all the steps of an argument or a derivation in a straightforward way, but he gives the impression of what's going on. And when you hear quantum physicists talk with each other, we'll talk about some particles doing this or that and entanglements being like this or that. And we're not saying that um, we really understand particles as being here and there and in the other place, but um, we speak in a kind of intuitive way, giving a, a cartoon picture of what's going on so that we can take our classical intuitions and kind of bring them toward the strange quantum realm and kind of bring the strange quantum realm farther toward uh, our classical intuitions. And so since Feynman was very good at providing intuition and building pictures in people's heads, I think that um, that might have been uh, somewhat understandable to some of the Victorians. He, he thought in less of a really mathematical way than in a physics way.
0: Would they have been able to leap forward in technology in some way? I guess I, I'm, I'm admittedly stuck a little bit at the wanting to see what exactly happens. What do people do so sort of more out of the, uh, if we step outside the laboratories or even the theoretical physicists, uh, coffee and tea you know, brainstorming <laughs> sessions, and we go to, down to Paddington Station, Um, and, you know, enormous, magnificent steam engines coming in and coming out, and suddenly this knowledge of quantum mechanics dropped into their life. Would there have been anything they could do uh, right away, or would they still have had to wait until the invention of electronics and things like that to actually begin to explore?
3: So I... Maybe I see that as part of the fantasy is Uh uh um, to, to, let's see, we are able at the moment to be undergoing the second quantum revolution because we have really amazing control over quantum systems. Quantum systems are really difficult to in- control. Entanglement is really difficult to control. Particles usually have to be at extremely low temperatures and totally isolated from their environments. Experimentalists today are, are able to manipulate quantum systems in ways that the founder of quantum theory thought would be impossible would never be achieved. So to accomplish things using quantum resources, you do need good technological control, but I'm supposing that in our fantasy in which the Victorians know quantum theory really well, they can get up to technological speed pretty quickly. Because after all, during the Industrial Revolution, technology just leaped ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. we can fantasize that after that leap, it leaped ahead again into the quantum realm.
0: Well, for instance, I, I just watched um, literally just the other night. I rewatched Metropolis. It's magnificent. Uh, film from the silent era, 1927, I think. Fritz Lang, very famous. If you saw a poster for it, if you don't know, it, Metropolis. Look it up. And uh, it's the middle. It's the 1920s, and they imagine, you know, building robots. One of the first movies to feature robots, things like that. And uh, so there, this, and yet the engine, they build it. Using you know very much or, you know, a more familiar movie to people might be Frankenstein or something right it's uh, the the mad scientist builds this robot using lots of steam power, <laughs> mm-hmm. lots of huge pistons turning around and and thousands of workers it's really a stunning film, um, and that eventually allows him to create a robot using all, by the way one of the most famous uh, tools of the mad scientists trade was the so-called Jacob's ladder, which is uh, the thing yeah. the mm-hmm. two two giant Metal rods sticking up like rabbit ears from an old TV, and the electrical spark running up it. Zzz, zzz, zzz. That's essential. Also, a theremin essential. Um, <laughs> but uh, that image of, of the Victor, that, that to me is, and you're talking about steampunk, that's almost like the height of this fantasy of, of that. Um, so, if we, and I hate to keep coming back to this, but if, if I had a steam locomotive that was powered by quantum, a quantum engine, uh What would that look like would it would it would it be a very 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 small engine <laughs> all these <laughs> i could imagine like all these normal sized railroad cars with people in them but the, the front is a comically small clown little toy <laughs> engine pulling <laughs> uh, with with enormous Quant amounts of, of, of steam coming out of course because that 's just <laughs> du. <rigor. laughs>
3: Quantum engines are quite small. As I mentioned, you can form one from just one atom. And since they are small, they will perform small amounts of work. And so um, you kind of have to find the right setting for a quantum thermodynamic technology to be useful. Um, so here's an example. So. As I mentioned, quantum systems have to be cooled down to low temperatures in order to exhibit quantum behaviors, like to support entanglement. And so people build really heavy duty refrigerators. Actually, these look really steampunk. They're copper and gold colored and have a bunch of wires sticking out. They're called dilution refrigerators or fridges. Um, And so you'll you'll put your quantum system your artificial atoms in uh, one particularly relevant case, in there, and you can have them do a quantum computation. And this is done in labs around the world today a, a small scale com- quantum computation with a small scale quantum computer. And then, once you're finished with that computation and you want to perform the next computation, then you have to cool the artificial da- atoms down even more, and that takes some work. So, we might want a sort of even better refrigerator to do that. So I'm working with um, a lab in Sweden, Simona Gasparinetti's lab, on building a quantum refrigerator to put inside the classical steampunk-looking dilution refrigerator, so that this quantum refrigerator can do the extra step of cooling your artificial atoms down even more at the end of a computation. So, in this case, the quantum thermodynamic technology, the quantum refrigerator is servicing another quantum system.
2: It's quantum well, all the way down. Yeah, <laughs> yes. exactly. Now, I'm guessing that
3: the,
0: the exhaust, if there is such a thing, the exhaust from the quantum computer, the uh, quantum refrigerator that's inside the regular refrigerator, that exhaust has to be piped out with that. Otherwise, if you actually took a refrigerator and put it inside another refrigerator, you would just be making. A mess, right? Because mm-hmm. the inner the inner refrigerator would be just giving off heat, and then heating up the outside. So mm-hmm. you're you're piping it out separately. Yeah,
3: you could think exactly. of you could think of the inner quantum refrigerator as a hooked up um, in just the right way to its environment.
0: Awesome. Now, um, I'm. Go ahead. I go just
1: ahead. am curious about scale here because you know Victorian steam engines, some of them could be quite large. Um, and with quantum things, you need to move into smaller and smaller scales where they become finer and finer instruments. So if you have a monumental, um, you know, normal thermodynamic refrigerator, um, you know, what is the scale of magnitude of your quantum refrigerator? I'm assuming it's not just like a tiny little cartoon refrigerator that's really small and, you know, you just have two at- two atoms inside.
0: Well, it has like, those know, little is... liquor, the little liquor, the little tiny liquor bottles yeah. in it instead of the
3: full size.
1: So like how many yeah, atoms the... is this kind of thing? Yeah. So
3: yeah, yeah. I, we actually, um, my other theory collaborator, a student of mine, Jose Antonio, and I just saw a picture within the past few days of the quantum refrigerator that our experimental collaborators had built, and it fits on a chip that fits in your hand. Oh, oh cool. wow!
0: A chip that fits in your hand, but I mean, it's much smaller. Uh, so, how big is the? Chip? How much of my hand is taken up with this chip, even?
3: Well, the. Um, and the chip, it has a background and it has um, the little artificial atoms printed on it, which are, um, what are they? Possibly, uh, I I should double check the length scale before. But I mean, even um, you,
0: like you said, so it's in your hand, but I'm imagining it's even, it's a speck on my hand. Is that correct? Or so it's these are big old...
3: artificial atoms. Um, if they were actual natural atoms, then they would be way too small for us to see without some extremely high powered microscope. Um, But these are artificial atoms. So they're actually little circuits that are designed to have some of the same properties of natural atoms. Mm -hmm. So a natural atom can have only one of a few possible energies, as Matt was alluding to earlier. And these artificial atoms have that same property.
0: Okay, so this sounds like even though I'm, they
3: look different,
0: I am not a religious person in the slightest. But this sounds like an affront to God. Unnatural, <laughs> unnatural atoms. What in the Matt? Do you know what an? Have you heard this term before?
2: Can you help us visualize? Um, well, what's going I guess on? that's kind of not visualizable by its very nature. Um, <laughs> something that happens a lot in physics is you'll have something that's some some entity. Uh, that for whatever reason is hard to get a handle on because it's too small, like an individual atom, because it's too crazy, like a black hole. Um, So what you do is you build a model that behaves in a way that you think is similar to the weird thing that you can't actually get your hands on. Um, And sometimes that's a physical object, like for instance, um, Maxwell's friend, uh, William Thompson, uh, Kelvin of the Kelvin scale, built um, atomic models out of actual physical belts and wheels. He actually sort of uh, had this big crank that was supposed to behave like an atom would. Um, Nowadays, we tend to use computer models um, because they are cheaper and safer, and you don't have to worry about them destroying reality or anything. Um, So you program the computer with the rules of this. Um, So I don't know which kind of fake atoms you're talking about here, Nicole. Um, it's, but...
3: it's a physical thing, mm-hmm. so it's uh, a circuit, and for our purposes we can think of its main important property as, as property of quantization. The possible amounts of energy that it can have are just a certain set of numbers, just as the possible uh, okay. amounts of energy that a natural atom can have form just a certain set of numbers.
0: Okay. All right, and we'll have to, I'm afraid we're running out of time, just as we're getting, this is, uh, Nicole, this is an inc- incredible topic, and then, as I'm sure you know, and I, uh, we've, we've just barely I like st- to think
3: so. scratched, <laughs> yeah,
0: we've, we've, we've just barely scratched the surface here, uh, as with many of our ifs, we've only just begun, um, but we're running out of time, and I, I want to leave it to our uh, listeners to send in any questions you have, and by the way, any images that came to mind, I'm still curious, I'm still asking, no, no one has... Truth be told, no one has ever taken me up on this. But if you have an artistic uh, ability or inclination or impulse in any way and want to sketch some image that came to mind uh, from from our adventure today, that would be kind of fun. Mm Send us
3: steampunk artwork. That would be great. (laughs) Steampunk
0: artwork would be amazing. I mean, that. yeah, exactly. Would love to see it. Um, Nicole Younger-Halpern is the author of Quantum Steampunk, And uh, she joined us today from uh, University of Maryland. Um, uh, Nicole, where can people go to um, learn more about you, learn more about this topic? And I assume the book is available everywhere.
3: You can Google Quantum Steampunk Nicole, and the book should come up, and my research group's website should come up. So I am connectable that way.
0: Awesome, awesome. Um, Is there a Twitter or any social media...
3: Yes, at yh 11 That's N-I-C-O-L-E-Y-H-11.
0: Fantastic. And I'll put that in there in our show notes. Um, and check it out, Quantum Steampunk, to find out more. And uh, have you been to, have, have you taken the book to any steampunk conventions? It strikes me as that would be kind of a fun thing.
3: I, until recently, lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is near waltham which is also called watch city and it has an annual watch city uh, steampunk festival oh, wow. so unfortunately i'm not living there this year um but i hope to get there and i would love to take the book fair
0: right on right on um uh matt do you have anything uh
2: you would like to plug this week um up? not well let's see here on um on sunday uh, april 10th i'm presenting at the um Uh, American Physics Society um, here in New York, if you want to come by. But I believe it's also going to be live streamed. Um, And I think they're letting people attend virtually um, for free, uh, which is a a big deal, because normally it's a very expensive conference. Um, Uh, Is there a link? mm, I'll see if I can conjure one. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Um, But it's the APS. If you search for APS conference, April, it should pop up. Right. Fantastic.
0: All right. Are they related to physics today? Is that a journal of the...
2: Uh, Physics Today is put out by the um, AIP, the American Institute of Physics, um, ah. who are who are very good folks.
0: Uh, yes, yes, yes. We get it. we have a lot of listeners come through there because uh, they uh, recommended our show to their readers, That's right. which was yeah, many a wonderful ago. thing. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gabby, anything you would like to plug?
1: Nope, I am still unplugged. Alas,
0: <laughs> And go uh, if you were to um, suddenly appear in steampunk form, what would, what uh, what kind of outfit would you don?
1: Well, obviously, I'm hoping I have a band shirt for ultraviolet catastrophe. um, (laughs) Bar none, I know that's a little uh, anachronistic, um, but of course that has to pair with um, the ridiculous skirts. um, I think, and then I need to have some sort of wrist device because I think that's bar none. Yeah, um, the barrier of entry for any steampunk person.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've seen some incredible. Yeah, they also in New York we have a number of events, but. Where steampunk uh, cosplay is done, and uh, it's astounding what people build. One of my favorite things that people will use is uh, the little cartridges from uh, that you the little carbon dioxide cartridges you use in like in a soda machine or something like that. Yes, like, you know, strap a ton of those onto them, and uh, it's fantastic. So, and of course, the aviator goggles. That's de rigueur, of course. Yeah, that's that's the most thing. Um, so, thank you, Nicole. Thank you so much for bringing uh, bringing your incredible vision to us today and uh thanks thank- for
3: having me on the podcast
0: oh it's wonderful wonderful to have you and uh um matt and gabby thank you as always um gabby could you help uh, set us up and nicole i'm not sure if you're familiar we have a ritual here at the end uh of, of each show and gabby could you help uh nicole and maybe you know if you could explain it to if nicole is, in, is a victorian a person of the victorian era how, how would you explain help her understand this uh, thing that happens?
1: Yeah, you know, so as we have been uh, blasted back into the past uh, because of quantum means or not, um, and we are absolutely tearing our hair out trying to figure out how to explain, yes, there are all of these tiny atoms doing insane things, um, we cannot help but shout the name of the show in unison.
2: What? We, uh, <laughs> the... the... <laughs>
0: Let's do it one more time, because I know we left Nicole behind. I can see that that train just shot out of the station. So, Nicole, if you would now join us in summoning the terror of the many millions of ifs that are suddenly coming our way, um, none of which have any particular position uh, until you touch them, uh, we scream the name of the show once again. Here we go, everybody, together.
1: What?
0: What? The... Become a super iffer. Join us on Patreon, Patreon.com/WhatTheIf. Get all your cool rewards and thank you for supporting our journey. May all your uh, fireboxes be hot. It's the best steampunk thing I could think of. See you all next week.